as you will all know, we're continuing our sermon series on 1 Peter. <clears throat> and we're discussing 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 to 2, verse 3 today. This is a rich passage. There's so much going on in this, this text that we can't possibly get to today. On Friday, I sat with Jeremy, went through my outline, and he said to me, Adam, you've got a 90-minute sermon here. So anyway, don't worry. We've cut a good portion out. It's only 60 minutes now, so it's all right. So to give you a high-level picture of where we're going to go today, I've got it on the screen behind us, I think. Um, I believe in this passage, Peter is inviting us into two postures of the heart, two fundamental ways of being in the world, two qualities that would color all that we think and do as Christians, as followers of Christ. The first posture of the heart is to live in fear, and the second is to live in love. So let's read the passage together. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 and following. This is the NIV. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in his last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Lord, I come before you today with a loaf and a few fish. This cannot feed us. What I've prepared cannot feed us. We need to feed on you, the pure spiritual milk. And so we pray, would you multiply this loaf and fish so that we may all eat and be satisfied and transformed by seeing your face. In your name we pray, amen. So let's dig into it. The first posture of the heart comes in verse 17 to 21, which many of your Bibles will have sort of cordoned off its own paragraph. And this is good. I'm often kind of not so sure about how the Bible separates or translations separate the Greek text, but this one, I think it's got it right. Verse 17 to 21 is one thought. The whole passage undergirds qualifies and flows from one verbal command. We can see this in the Greek. So the, and this command occurs at the end of verse 17. Live in reverent fear. This is the grammatical center of the Greek text in verse 17 to 21. Two quick notes on this. First, the word the NIV translates as live, anastrafeta in Greek, could also be rendered conduct yourselves or order your lives accordingly. In other words, Peter is inviting us not to just a one-time action, but to a heart posture, a way of being in the world that defines all that we do. 
And second, I found it fascinating that when most English translations have added this adjective reverent in front of the fear, reverent fear, you'll see on the screen. I think that's an apt translation. That's a good word to put in there. But the Greek is much more pointed. En fabo anastrafeta. In fear, conduct yourselves or live in fear. <laughs> you had to give me this passage, eh, Jeremy? Fear of the Lord, live in fear. Way to toss the new preacher under the bus. I was contemplating asking the ushers to lock the doors before I started preaching, just in case everybody ran for the exits when I said live in fear, but glad to see most of you are still in your seats. But joking aside, this is a tough word. I imagine I'm not alone when I say that my experience of fear has not always been good. For a couple years now, I've had bouts of anxiety every year or so. A week of panic will just come upon me. I've known fear to cripple, to paralyze, to deprive me of a week of sleep and make it so that I can't focus. And spanning out from just the personal experience, looking at church history, fear has often been used as a weapon of abuse. This is all too relevant this weekend, just after Truth and Reconciliation Day, which reminds us of all the ways the church has used doctrines such as fear of the Lord to manipulate indigenous peoples of Canada. That's a grievous sin. So how can fear be the posture with which we are to walk through the world, the thing that characterizes all of our lives as Christians? This doesn't make sense. We've got to tread gently here, but as I've sat at Peter's feet this past month and listened to these words, I've come to see a different sort of fear, a fear that drives out all fear, a fear that empowers and releases us to become who God made us to be. And my prayer is that we may catch a glimpse of that fear today through Peter's words. So what does he mean by fear? Well, we don't have to look far to figure this out. I think most of the clues are in the paragraph we've already read, verse 17 to 21. The first point that emerges is that this, that Christian fear, is an exilic fear. Look at your English translations. Peter's command, live in fear, is right next to, or even kind of on both sides of, a qualifying statement. The NIV has, your time as foreigners. Live your time as foreigners in fear. Or the NRSV says, live in fear during the time of your exile. In other words, this fear comes from the knowledge that we are exiles, that we're foreigners in the world, that this world is not our home. Okay, now hold on. We've got to be careful with this concept of exile in this world not being our home. I confess I've struggled with this in the past. Many times I've seen this concept of being exiles lead to an irreverent or even flippant posture towards the world around us, the material world. This world isn't our home. Therefore, I'm not called to care for it. It's going to burn anyway. I often see this posture, and I don't think this is what is meant by the word exile. We've got to dig deeper to determine what's meant by this word. Fundamentally, by using exile, Peter is invoking Israel's long history of exile in foreign countries, Egypt, Babylon. So that's the background for this statement. How did Israel act when they were exiles in the Old Testament? Were they disinvested from the well-being of whatever surrounding culture or world they were in? Screw the Babylonians, we don't care about the, the surrounding neighborhoods? No. In fact, we have these examples, such as Esther and Joseph, of their presence being a blessing to the surrounding peoples. One of the most striking examples is Jeremiah 29, where the prophet tells the people of en, who are in exile, he writes them a letter and he says, look, you've got to seek the peace and prosperity of the city in which you are exiled. Instead, I want to argue that for the ancient Israelites, to be in exile didn't mean to disinvest from the surrounding world, but it meant to define themselves with reference to another home, another reality, other than the one which immediately surrounded them. To decide how to believe and behave, they didn't look to the surrounding Babylonian culture. 
They looked to their true home. And the same is true for us. To be in exile means to look to our true home to decide how to believe and behave in this world. We take our cue from God. So to sum up, as exiles, we are people who look to another reality as our point of reference for what to believe and how to behave and what to fear. This is the exilic fear we're talking about. An exilic fear is a fear of God, a fear that drives out the other fears of this world. We don't fear based on the world around us. We fear based on God. All right, exilic fear. Second, this is a restful fear. I tried to depict the Greek grammar of this passage visually, so let's see if that works when it comes up. But the command to fear is at the center of this text. This is how the grammar is working. And then what f- um, it flows from what comes before and what comes afterwards. Oh, do we have the next slide? I think it's, wait for it. It's not up there yet. Okay, yeah, center of the text, cool, we got that. And then it flows from what comes before and what comes afterwards. In other words, why should we fear? Well, it's because of what is in 17a. We'll go on to the next slide, Don, one more. Yes, bingo. Comes before what's in 17a and what is after in 18, 18 to 21. It's interesting that we find in this text before and afterwards a wonderfully complex picture of God. First, in the text before, we have God depicted as the impartial judge. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, fear, says Peter. That's the grounds for our fear. In other words, because we know him as judge, we fear him. Again, I want to clarify this word judge. Many modern misconceptions float around this idea. It's in its ideal form, a judge is someone who rights the wrong and who heals the wound. And this is where the analogy breaks down, right? Because human judges often don't do this. We're fallible. They fail to see the whole picture, and so they fail to offer solutions that bring true justice and healing. But this is not so with God. From Genesis to Revelation, the biblical God is committed and able to right the wrong, heal the wound, and bring life to all of his creation. When we stand at the end, we will all say, your judgments are good, loving, and just, O God. However, we also know that he will bring this life and renewal by removing from creation all those sources of injustice and pain. This is the image of him separating the wheat from the chaff. And so on the one hand, this is a good thing. We all long for things to be made right, right? A world free of evil? Love it. And it's also a kind of sobering and terrifying thing because brothers and sisters, I am a source of pain and injustice in the world. You are. We are all sinners. So this is the first picture of God that Peter has in mind. We can already feel the you know, trembling that we have before him, the fear of the Lord. But in verse 18, Peter doesn't stop there, right? In verse 18, he, he draws on the text before and he draws on the text afterwards. We have another picture of God, and this picture is one of Redeemer. Verse 18, fear because you know that you were redeemed. This word, lutrao in Greek, has financial connotations. It means to buy. And this image, too, is wonderful. It's also challenging. You were redeemed. You were bought by God. You belong to him. That means he'll protect you. You can rest in him. You're his. But at the same time, you belong to God. He owns you. Your life is not your own. So this picture of God as redeemer flows right through this passage, the second half, 18 to 21, and lands at the end of the paragraph in this statement of so your faith and hope are in God. He is our redeemer. Our faith and hope are in him. So here we have, at the beginning and end of this section, Peter bookends it with God as judge and God as redeemer. 
two complex pictures of God that almost struggle to fit together. These are the two pillars which, which support and qualify the command to fear. You can almost hear Peter saying to us, look, you've got to hold these two ideas in tension. Let your fear come from this complex picture. He will make all things right, destroying the sources of evil from the world. And again, that's sobering, right? Because each of us are a source of evil. And yet he will defend you, for you are his. This is complex. It's hard to hold these truths in tension. And as I was thinking on it, I was even, I was asking myself, what does this actually look like in tangible form? How does this manifest? I think it looks like restful obedience. I'm going to give you that word, restful obedience. In the seventh book of C.S. Lewis's Narnia, there's an image I think will help us conceive of this complex picture of God, the fear coming from that, and this restful obedience. In one of the darkest hours of Narnia, when fear threatens to overwhelm many of the Narnians, the last king of Narnia says to one of the children, Courage, child. We are all between the paws of the true Aslan. I love that phrase. But now think on that. Think on that image. A child resting between the paws of a mighty lion. This makes no sense. That's where the prey would be. The only way this image makes sense is when the child knows the lion is fearsome and the lion is good. If he wasn't good, we couldn't rest there. He'd eat us. But if he wasn't fearsome, we couldn't rest between his paws either. We'd be at risk of the other dangers in the jungle around us. So the same is true for us. When we come to know God as both the fearsome judge and the good redeemer, that's where we find true rest. This is a fear of the Lord that brings us true rest. And in, this, in the book of Narnia, going back to that image, this complex picture of Aslan motivates the children to stand firm in their darkest hour, obey Aslan even to the end. Not because, catch this, not because they're racked with anxiety that he'll judge them if they don't stand true to him, but because they know that he's fearsome in his might and that he's gentle in his love. This fear leads them to restful obedience. So it's an exilic fear. Christian love is a restful fear. And finally, it's a revolutionary fear. As we've discussed, Peter grounds the command to fear in a complex picture of God. But when we look at the text again, we see that this is the same as saying he grounds the command to fear in the story of Jesus. He tells the story of Jesus in verse 18 to 21. This isn't special, right? I mean, he's an apostle. This is what the apostles do. The apostles tell the story of Jesus a lot. But in this text, Peter tells the story in a unique way, drawing out certain qualities of the story. And we need to pay attention to those differences in order to understand what he's saying here and the sort of fear he's calling us into. So the first difference we see or the first thing that Peter seems to be emphasizing is the epicness of the Jesus story, the grandiosity of it. It's eternal. Look at the text again. Jesus was destined before the foundation of the world, says the NRSV, and revealed at the end of the ages. In comparison, gold and silver are perishable. Now, this is a bizarre statement. As moderns, we probably don't get this as much. We don't deal with gold and silver. We have, you know, electronic money and whatnot. But it's in the very, for the ancient mind, it would be in the very definition of gold and silver to not be perishable. They're remarkably stable elements. They don't react with a lot of gases or liquids. And so they're preserved, untarnished for long periods of time. And yet next to God's story, even gold and silver are perishable. This is a striking image. God's story is eternal. Peter's trying to show that in rich imagery, invoking the image of gold and silver. It's also powerful. Again, Peter draws a comparison here to underscore this power. 
Next to God's story, he says, the ways of life handed down to you from your ancestors, by which he probably is speaking of the idolatry, the worship of idols that they had beforehand. All of that, the Roman Greek pantheon, is empty. This, too, isn't so wild to us now as moderns, but would be insane for the ancient mind. Freshly converted from pantheism. Hold on, they'd like to say Zeus and Athena, Poseidon and Ares, these mighty gods that we once worshipped, when seen next to the blood of Jesus, are empty and powerless? Again, God's story is powerful. So God's story is epic, it's eternal, it's powerful. But then Peter also emphasizes that God's story has become yours. Look again at the text. You were ransomed, he says. Jesus Christ was revealed for your sake. Through him, you believe. You are one of the actors in this eternal and epic drama. This takes my breath away. The creator of the universe, the one who stood before all things and brought them into being simply by the vapor of his breath, has chosen you to be his child destined you to spend eternity in intimate union with him, working with him to bring order and abundance to all of his vast creation. And even now, he who is the ultimate reality lives in your heart, working through your actions and your words to bring new life to all things. All of the ancient ballads of the past, Lord of the Rings, you name it, the songs of noble warriors and just causes, They are merely reflections of the epic story that you and I are a part of. There are battles to be fought, evil to conquer, peoples to save, and a king to die for. Come, says this king, ride with me, fight with me. And we respond in humble fear, fear of the Lord, awestruck at this gift. I will follow you. I will die for you just as you've died for me. So Christian fear is not anxious, but it's exilic. It's restful and it's revolutionary. A fear that frees us from all fear and empowers us to die for love and so become who we were made to be. That's fear of the Lord. Awesome. But our passage doesn't end here. In the second half... Chapter 1, verse 22, right through to chapter 2, verse 3, Peter calls us into another posture of the heart, namely, to love one another. Now, let's look at the Greek grammar again. And when we do so, we find that, again, this whole passage, verse 22 down to chapter 2, verse 3, supports, qualifies, and flows from one verbal command again. There's a verb at the center of this whole thing. And again, this verbal command occurs at the very end of the first sentence, as if Peter's trying to emphasize it. Love one another deeply, is what our NRV translations have. And again, Peter does not have in mind here a once in a blue moon action, something that we do every once in a while. But instead, he wants this love to be a quality that would govern our whole lives. It's a heart posture. That comes from this word ektenos, the word that's translated deeply in many of our our, uh, translations. Could also be rendered earnestly or constantly, we're always in this state of loving. He wants it to color our whole lives. Okay, so what does he mean by this love? How can we think of this? Unlike the command with live in fear, I found that Peter doesn't really describe this love too much. Instead, he seems much more concerned in this passage to tell us of how this sort of love is begun 
and how it grows. First, this love grows in the light of God's story. Look at verse 22 to 25. Peter tells us here to love one another deeply for or because, and then he launches into this list of long causal relationships, which is kind of confusing. It was hard to parse this apart. But I think that the image he's putting forward, if I can summarize it for us, is this. The word of God or the gospel story is planted as an imperishable seed in you when you hear it and receive it. And when it takes root, you're born again. And when we're born again, we love. That's the foundation of love. That's the kind of causal link in the chain leading us to love. And the main point I want to draw from this is that this love that Peter is calling us into will only begin to take root in us when God's story is planted in us. Moving on, chapter 2, verse 2, he continues this growing imagery, although now he uses the example of a child hungry and eating. Here he says, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. In light of the surrounding context, this is akin to him saying that you would grow in love. The main point here is that this love, just as it was begun only in light of the gospel, it grows only in light of the gospel, only when we are feeding on God's big story daily. Finally, one last point that I want to, section of the text I want to draw attention to is in verse 24, Peter cites a passage from the prophet Isaiah, and to largely the same effect. The prophet says, quote, all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Now, when we look back at the historical context, we see that Isaiah was speaking to a people in exile. He was, and he was, note this, reorienting them away from the things of their surrounding Babylonian culture, saying, don't define yourself in light of that. It's grass, it fades. And reorienting them towards God's promise of restoration. So, by citing this passage here, I think Peter's doing the same thing. Don't look to this reality to determine how to believe and behave, he says. Look to God's story. Live in light of his story. And then the love will grow in us. So this, prof- this is a prophetic image. Sorry, this prophecy is an exilic image, an image of exile rather than a growth image. And it has the same message. Only by living in light of God's epic story can this love be born and grow within us. I think there's a great comfort here for us. Even if we find our love so small within us, we can trust that as we dwell daily in God's story, remembering Christ living dying and rising again for us, our love will grow. Our love will grow in light of that story. As a brief illustration of this, over this past year, I've been trying to do this, been trying to dwell in God's story with differing levels of success. And one of the main ways I've been doing this, or trying to do this, is with a prayer of examine exercise. Many of you will know this exercise, but for you who don't, I'll take a moment at the end of the day and reflect on the day. I have these these questions that get me to reflect on the day and see the day in light of God's big story. For instance, one of the questions, I sit on my bed and picture Jesus next to me. I picture him saying to me, child, how have I invited you into my mission of love today? And then I'll sit there and I'll journal. I'll go, oh yeah, there was that moment and that conversation with a friend and this time with the dog. These are all ways that you were inviting me into your mission of love. It's teaching me to see my day in light of how God is working in the world, in light of his big story. 
So anyway, I'm doing that practice. And this weekend, I slept over at my parents' house. It's closer to the church, and I was hoping it would give me just some uninterrupted time away from chores to work on this sermon. Friday morning, I got in late Thursday night, woke up Friday morning, wake up, ready to be productive and focused, walk upstairs and find that the kitchen needs to be cleaned. Okay, dishwasher takeout. That's fine. I mean, this is a gift I can give to my family, right? I'm, I'm fine with that. So I take the dishwasher out, clean some of the dishes in the sink, about to leave the kitchen, and I find that our cats have ripped apart the pantry, ripping up a plastic bag and spewing dried berries all over the floor. Okay, that's right. Um, I still have some more time. I'll sweep that up real quick, put the berries in a plastic bag, another plastic bag, walk down the hallway and find that our dog has defecated all over the laundry room floor. Okay, at this point, I'm grumbling out of my breath. Go to the sink, fill up a bucket of soapy water, walk over, start scrubbing the ground. Not at all gracious at this point. Anyway, by the time my brother came down the stairs, I was struggling, to say it lightly. I can't clean anymore. I need to write my sermon, I said to him. He was very gracious. Okay, Adam, you go, write your sermon. But as I was walking away, I heard that still, small voice. Child. How am I inviting you into my mission of love today? And I knew the answer is right here. By taking the dishwasher out, sweeping the berries up, mopping the floor of dog excrement, and doing it all with joy. My point is that as soon as I saw my life in light of God's story, love was birthed in me. I went from being thoroughly me-centered and disgruntled to be in, in impatient, to thinking, what a joy to clean up the dog poo. Because this is more than an interruption. This is how I can love my family, and thus how I participate in God's mission of love to the world. Yes, there are times we need to put our blinders on, just get the work done, just write the sermon. I totally understand. But hear this point. It's when we see our lives in light of God's story. When we do this, it doesn't take us out of the day-to-day. -day, it transfigures the day-to-day. It casts the mundane in a new light, and it allows love to grow in our hearts. This is the other half of that noble vision of living and dying for the good king that we talked about earlier. While that vision is totally true, this is an epic story that we're a part of, it's also true that the noble vision, the epic story, is taking place all around you in the normal humdrum of life. I think one of the greatest threats that we can have in our faith walk is thinking that God's epic story, his mission, is some glamorous and shining reality that's only taking place in some far-off heavenly realm. The epic story is here. Jesus became incarnate to dwell in our dirt and brokenness with us. The epic story is in the long hours spent helping a coworker with a project, picking up the kids from soccer practice, or washing the dishes at the end of the day, or cleaning up dog poo. And when we realize that, when we see our surroundings as holy ground, more often than not, we will find love growing in our hearts. The love that Peter calls us to grows in light of God's story. This love also grows in purity. This is the last point in this text that we're going to draw out today. In verse 22, Peter writes, now that you have purified your souls, love. In other words, this love comes from a purified soul. Later in that verse, as if to hammer home the point further, Peter writes, From pure hearts, love. It's interesting that most English translations leave that word, katharas, pure, out 
But Peter emphasizes it. He says pure at the beginning of the paragraph, and he says pure here. In other words, it's a pure soul and a pure heart that love comes out of. Now, the word pure can sound strange and abstract. I get that. And I think Peter gets that too. So in verse, in chapter 2, verse 1, Peter makes this idea of purity concrete for us by inviting us into a very, very concrete action, ridding ourselves of a whole, and then he lists this whole list of vices. So there's two points I want to make on this. First, while these vices are diverse, they encompass words, they encompass actions, they encompass beliefs, all of them are united. They all involve a negative outlook towards other people. All of these vices are a posture of seeing other people as threats to be neutralized or as objects to be manipulated. And I think that when we notice this, this we've seen a key part of what Peter means by purity. In this passage, to purify ourselves is closely linked with getting rid of a mindset that sees others negatively. So that's the first point. The second point being, in the Greek, we see that this act of purifying of our lives, I'm going to depict it again. There you go. Hopefully that helps on the screen. The Greek grammar. This act of purifying our lives is the source for Peter's command that we crave pure spiritual milk. In other words, if you're filled with these vices, you can't hunger You can't crave, you can't fill yourself with God's story. We've got to empty ourselves of these vices before we can crave. The image that Peter seems to have in mind is a child whose belly is filled with sand so that it doesn't hunger for the good milk that brings life. Or a tree, going back to that plant imagery, a tree with leaves so smeared with soot that it can't absorb the sunlight. What happens to these? Well, they might survive getting a bit of sunlight and a bit of milk here and there, but they hardly grow and they will never thrive. The same is true for us. When we live with our bellies filled with these vices, when we live with a negative outlook and a posture of negativity towards others, this clogs us up. It makes us so that we can't feast on God's story and we can't grow in our love. Brothers and sisters, let us hear Peter's last challenge here. Pursue right relationship with each other. We must purify ourselves by doing this, ridding ourselves of anger and hatred towards others. Now, I know this is hard. Relationships are complex, more complex than I can speak to in the few minutes we have left. Healing can take months or years or even decades. And if you have trauma or deep pain, please don't push yourself. God's patient, God's gentle, He brings healing in time. But I still want us to hear Peter's word. We can meditate on scripture and go to church and listen to worship songs as much as we want. Indeed, please do these things. It's excellent for our growth and love, as we talked about earlier. But if we continue to hold anger and hatred in our hearts towards others, it's like having sand in our bellies. It'll be very difficult to feast on God's story and grow in love. So Christian love grows in light of God's story, and it grows in purity. In light of this, let us humbly pursue right relationship with each other, ridding ourselves of all hatred and malice so that we might fill ourselves up with God's story, his epic and earthy story, and in so doing, grow in Christian love. I want to invite the worship team to this stage now. And as always, if you want to be prayed for, for anything and everything, we'd love to pray for you. Please come forward during the worship, and we have Wendy and Craig Tim, I believe, on for prayer. There they are at the back. Are you guys going to be back there? 
You're going to be up here. Okay, great. Come up here for a prayer. They'd love to pray for you. As the worship team gets settled, let us pray. Father, we thank you for your epic and earthy story. The story of when you, in pre-incarnate word, came down to us in the person of Jesus, lived among us, died for us, and rose again. Thank you for this story. And as we go forward into our week, would you help us to keep dwelling in this story, to keep letting it run over our minds and our hearts? And as we do so, would you grow in us a proper fear of you and a deep love for your people? In your name we pray these things. Amen.